What is up, folks? Justin Kana here. This is the Emulsion Podcast. Welcome to episode 32. We're live on YouTube again today. This is episode two of the six that I'm committed to doing here on YouTube. Uh, if you want to be involved in the conversation, make sure you're subscribed on that platform and hit that little notification bell so you can get notifications when this show goes live. And then you can get involved because I want your opinions. I want your perspectives and your questions. That's what makes this show great is you folks. So tweet at me if you aren't listening live at Justin underscore Kana and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Today's beverage is an interesting one. If you're watching on YouTube, I, I teased a little late night thing. It's 8.30 p.m. here in Seattle and I'm drinking this. This is a Chaga Mushroom Elixir from Four Sigmatic. I got this in a sample pack. And it tastes like tea. It literally just tastes like kind of like earthy, nice tea, which I'm, I mean, I'm a fan of it. And it's in my favorite mug, my J8 mug. Uh, that's hopefully going to wind me down after this. I'm going to try to get up decently early tomorrow, but I can't have, I can't be having coffee at this time in the evening. Let's get right into this week's stories and just a little behind the scenes for you folks on how I research this show. I use um, the Apple Notes app when I see a headline and I, 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 when I think it would be good for the show, I save it to my Emulsion note in my phone, and then that syncs up to my laptop. So when I'm ready to sit down and write the show, all the stories are there and ready to go, and it's super easy for me to build up the show notes for you all. However, sometimes I go to the note on the morning of the show, and there's like two stories, so I have to do a little legwork and actually scour the internet for things that are interesting, which I think is fun because I stumble upon some things that I wouldn't have always, you know, otherwise seen. But this week was great because I opened the note and it was hell of stories like ready to go for the show. So that made me super, super happy. So the first story is something that we have to talk about. And it's maybe one of the reasons why you clicked on this video in the first place, because it took the internet by storm this last week. And that's all about Sebastian Bra giving back his Michelin stars. Yeah, you probably saw it somewhere in your newsfeed as a headline if you keep yourself in the loop, uh, and it even extended outside of our industry sphere. So let's talk about what happened. So first of all, can we just talk about the photo that The Guardian used in the article? I was clicking through it this morning. It's freaking hilarious. It looks like a horrible mugshot of these two great chefs, Michelle and his son, Sebastian. Um, Sebastian is holding like a pepper mill, like twisting it over what seems to be like an empty countertop. It's not the best way to portray these guys right off the bat. But uh, Les Souquets, a restaurant in Laguille, France, that's had three Michelin stars now for almost 20 years is the place that we're talking about. So Sebastian runs it now. Uh, he's 46 years old, and they got their first three-star review in 1999. So that's crazy. To give you kind of some more stats, there's only 27 other chefs in France that have that kind of ranking. And the reason that it's making headlines is, one, it hasn't happened in over a while. The last time that someone gave back their their stars was in two, apparently in 2008 when Olivier Rollinger closed his restaurant saying that he wanted a quote-unquote quieter life. Um, and he had three stars. Prior to that, in 2005, Alain Senderen closed his three-star establishment and then reopened with kind of a more casual concept. But, you know, number two, the reason why this story, the, the Sebastian Bra story is getting covered is because if you were paying attention, it's because of the reasons. So Les Souquet isn't changing concepts. They're going to kind of stay exactly the same way that they are. They're still going to serve fine dining, high-end gastronomy. But this is all about everything that comes with those elusive three stars. 
So just a quickie aside, Bra announced this in a Facebook video, which I think is super awesome. The post has over 5,000 shares on it as of checking it uh, when I researched this story this morning. And it's in French, so I'm counting uh, on some kind of loose translations, but the post does give a little bit more info if you want to check that out. It's linked up in the article. So he says, quote, Today, at 46 years old, I want to give a new meaning to my life and redefine what is essential, end quote. So the chef says that he wanted to be allowed to cook excellent food away from the frenzy of star ratings and the anxiety over Michelin's anonymous food judges who couldn't who could arrive at his restaurant at any moment. Quote, you're inspected two or three times a year. You never know when. Every meal that goes out could be inspected. That means that every day, one of the 500 meals that leaves the kitchen could be judged. Maybe I will be less famous, but I accept that, he said without wondering whether it's my creations that will appeal to Michelin's inspectors, end quote. So this has to be the question of the day, right? I don't want to make it one of those, was it a good idea or a bad idea questions. I want to kind of get your opinion on the Michelin guide itself, and I will kind of go first. I worked in Michelin-starred restaurants for about five years. I know the ins and outs of places like that, not just in the U.S., but in Europe as well. And I'm 100% in agreement with what he says, but I don't think it's exclusive to the Michelin Guide, and that's why I want to focus on them and kind of give my thoughts on two aspects. One, the quality of the Michelin brand, and two, the way that they go about their reviewing process. So point one... Michelin is a tricky business, right? They have guides all over the world. They have inspectors from all over the world with different nationalities and everything. And that comes with incredibly varying levels of quality. So take, for example, a restaurant I went to in Hong Kong a few years ago that was a barbecue restaurant, and they did roast goose and pork, and the food was bomb, but they literally had, like, plastic chopsticks and paper napkins and a little caddy on the table, and they had a Michelin star. It's the same with dim sum, like a dim sum spot that me and my buddy went to. One star, but the servers made you write your order on a little dim sum paper, and they literally just dropped off the food and kind of left you alone. However, the food was also bomb. So how do you kind of define what makes a good meal and not a good meal, especially when it crosses cultures like that? So to do that, I have to give a little reference to a lady that was actually one of my professors in culinary school that gave me a great little rundown of how the Michelin Guide picks their restaurants. And... This may or may not be exclusive just to the U.S. and Europe, but she mentioned a couple key points that I want you to think about. So one in kind of factors that Michelin Guide looks for is a chef with a pedigree. So this is a chef that has worked for other chefs who has kind of done something in their career that uh, justifies them having this kind of accolade bestowed on them. The second one is remarkable service that goes along with, you know, the the traditional front of house side of things. So is there a service team? Are they attentive? Are they, you know, all those things that go along with quote unquote remarkable service. Rare and exotic ingredients. So the chef must be able to use different things that, that doesn't always, and note that it doesn't always say expensive ingredients. So rare and exotic can be, you know, this very, very interesting type of clam or a different interesting green that is foraged out there, um, which is one of the reasons why I feel like Nordic uh, food was able to rise to its popularity because it wasn't always, it was probably just ex- as expensive at the peak of it uh, to get these different kinds of greens and, and shellfish as it was to get foie gras and truffles and all this stuff. But rare and exotic ingredients is something that they look for. 
uh, atmosphere. It has to have some element of, you know, refinement and luxury in it. It doesn't always have to be super high-end, but atmosphere definitely weighs into it for them. And then there's also a point that they call the X factor. So my professor, when she referenced this entire list, she talked about a meal she had when she went out to a three Michelin star restaurant and she was carrying a purse when she came in. And when she sat down at the table, she was going to set her purse down on the floor. But before the purse was able to reach the floor, someone had slid a uh, small little stool underneath the purse for the purse to sit on. And for her, that was the X factor, something that set that restaurant apart from every single other restaurant that she's, that she's ever been to, especially in that uh, kind of high-end fine dining stratosphere. And if you've ever attended any of these establishments outside of, I would argue, like the U.S., France, the U.K., and sometimes Japan, it's very, very difficult to figure out why that same one star in Hong Kong I mentioned is arguably the quote-unquote same level as a place like Gramercy Tavern, right? Because they both have one star, but they're so very vastly different dining experiences and food in general. So for me, it was a little bit weird after I left the French Laundry feeling a little bit jaded after these big monsters of star restaurants to go to Norway, specifically Bergen, a city with no Michelin guide at all, and cook there, right? So taking aside the amount that I learned because everyone was ex-Michelin, but what I want to point out is how liberating it was to be for cooking for just the guest, right? And this is where I can kind of empathize with this, uh, with Sebastian Bra, where we would do guest chef dinners and field trips and special parties at the restaurant, all with the intent of building kind of like a sense of community in this city via a restaurant. And before I left, it was, and before I felt like all I was doing was kind of cooking for the chef de cuisine or the, the executive chef or my sous chefs. So for me, it wasn't fulfilling in any capacity to work at these three Michelin star restaurants where all you're going for is the accolades. But when I went to a place that doesn't have a guide anymore, it kind of flipped it on its head for me. So, you know, I digress. It, I, I'm again in a city that has no Michelin guide, and I like it that way. Seattle doesn't have a Michelin guide. So I, I think as much as you can argue that consumers are getting smarter or numb to hype, you can also, like, if you can manage to open a place that pleases guests, the people that are literally coming to pay you for what you do, that is more important than how many stars you have, at least for me. Uh, again, there are certain chefs who the ego plays into it heavily for them, and that is the only thing that motivates them. That is their North Star, and that is what drives them to come into work every day. And I've worked at places where the Michelin stars bring fully packed houses every night. We've also seen the places where no amount of accolades are, are, ever, are ever enough. There's, they always want more. And I absolutely can empathize with that as well. I started off in this industry wanting three stars and the best restaurant in the world. And now this is something that I've learned along the way that I'd rather have happy guests and happy staff and be able to cook creatively every single night. But that's just me. And that, that's kind of a huge asterisk as well. If I'm only able to be at this place because I am only able to be at this place of creative freedom because that is the experience that I have. Don't let this little kind of rant of mine dissuade you from going to a Michelin-starred restaurant to work because there's honestly no better place to get experience that will give you the skills to make those decisions for yourself. That quote is super true if you have to learn the rules to be able to break them. It goes something along those lines. But I certainly hope that this makes Chef Sebastian happier as a chef and keeps him in the kitchen for many, many more years to come. But again, this is your show too. What are your thoughts? Do you want Michelin stars someday? Are you kind of anti-Michelin? Could you care less and you just want to serve people affordable burgers? Just comment at me, bro.
Next up is a story from Startup Land, and that is the news that Airbnb, the rising star of um, the re- and the rising star of the reservation making world, Resi, have partnered to offer reservations to the Airbnb platform. So, 16 cities here in the U.S. have just announced that you can literally book where you want to eat at the same time that you book where you want to stay, which is super interesting and something that is definitely going to keep Airbnb as a leader in the space for sure. I mean, certainly for me and to anyone who's watched my travel vlogs can understand, I literally only care about staying for cheap so I can spend more money on food. So Airbnb invested $13 million in Resi, $13 million US dollars in Resi, which should hopefully for b- provide them with at least a few resources to kind of get this rolled out internationally over the coming months. If you're going to Paris, go ahead and book your dinner plans right there and then as well. So bravo, bravo. I'll hopefully be using this on a couple of trips I have coming up. We will see if that actually happens. Uh, I don't think I'm traveling to any cities that have it available or where I'm actually using Airbnb. So if I do, we'll see if that actually happens. Um, I think it'd be interesting uh, with if they also were to pair it up with something else that they're rolling out this week called Experiences, where you can um, go on hiking tours and eat at people eat at people's houses all as part of like this one big Airbnb package. I think that partnering with Resi is smart just because it offers a time saver. You don't have to leave the app to also kind of like package in a full experience. A little quickie in-between story real fast. I wanted to cover it just because I think it's super important to talk about um, when we talk about authenticity. Um, Rob Report did a pretty cookie-cutter piece on Daniel Blude. The writing itself isn't anything to, to phone home about, but more or less... Um, their goal was to promote this fancy schmancy event of of theirs on Laguna Beach. But the headline made me kind of think a bit, and I wanted you to kind of think about it as you go forward in your journey as well. It's all about how Daniel Belude was raised in France but turned himself into a New York City icon. And I think that the wording there is kind of what got me. It He turned himself into an icon. He worked his way up in quite a few places in New York City and kind of start that started with Danielle in 1993. So that's crazy. Uh, 12 years after he arrived in the States. So he worked his way up in various different restaurants for 12 years and then he opened Danielle. So now he's considered one of the U.S.'s best chefs. If you haven't read any of his kind of short pieces that he's done, it's pretty fantastic. I definitely recommend Letters to a Young Chef and The Fourth Star, both really, really great books If that I don't think are talked about enough in making sure that the traditional restaurant model is right for you, if that's something that you're interested in. But my takeaway from it is that geography didn't matter in the 90s, and it doesn't matter today either. I think about Matt Orlando, a Californian in uh, Copenhagen, where he runs one of the best Nordic-inspired places around, kind of go where you're happy, you know, where there's potential, and then do great work. And that was my takeaway from that. I, I think that's pretty powerful. So one more quick news story. Um, uh, these little in-between stories, they're just super fast. I don't feel like I need to spend super crazy amounts of time on them. Um, 11 Madison Park, the restaurant that currently holds the number one spot in the world on the San Pellegrino list, created an Instagram account this week. It's uh, currently September of 2017, and they just got an Instagram account. So that's a thing. They have posted four photos, and they have 14.9 thousand followers. So all the photos are in black and white right now, no doubt to kind of give a little bit of hype to kind of get some get some talk going for their reopening, which happens later this year. Uh, if you kind of, you know, need to 
plan to make a reservation with them. You can currently book for the second week of October online, where I'm sure they'll bring some color into that feed once they uh, reopen that space. Next up is a really interesting story from a listener of ours out of New Orleans. Cliff Smith sent me this story that came out of um, the New Orleans Advocate this week. Sorry, I had to check to see, make sure I was citing that correctly. Uh, and it's all about uh, Alone Shia and John Besh that who are parting, Josh Besh who are parting ways. It is an interesting story, and I wanted to kind of cover it because if you were around way back in the day when this wasn't even called the Emulsion, and we just talked together on Facebook Live. We covered this story when Shia got named Best New Restaurant by the James Beard Awards in 2016. Anyways, John Besh, who had the Besh, who has the best re- Besh restaurant group, that's kind of a tongue twister, he wants to pull out of the relationship, or should I say part ways, with Shia. But it's not all for nothing. Apparently, Shia is in negotiations to buy the restaurant itself, so they won't be part of the restaurant group anymore or have any of the benefits that go along with being attached to John Besh. But it'll just be more or less making Shia his own chef slash owner of his own space. It's a little strange to me because Shia has been with the Besh Restaurant Group since 2003, which is a crazy long time to have this kind of switch happen. You know, if you're in relations for 14 years, all of a sudden something else should have had to have changed to uh, make that happen. But there's no doubt that this has kind of been in the water for a little while if this is the kind of break that is happening where it's kind of like this mellow and this kind of like um, sought out. Um, But... uh, Cliff and I, the gentleman who uh, sent me this story, we spoke a little bit uh, when he sent me this story. We agreed that this is a pretty eye-catching headline because it kind of seems like sexy chef drama, but it seems to be more or less like a business decision. There's no like any other weird drama that goes along with this, but uh, I thought I would cover it because you guys were interested in hearing a little bit about it. So next up is a really interesting story out of Minneapolis, and we've gotten a couple uh, questions about this already on the live stream, but uh, there's a project called the Sioux Chef, the S-I-O-U-X Chef, so that's like the Native American tribe, and they have just announced that they have another restaurant opening in 2019. So again, this story is out of Minneapolis. So um, for those of you that don't know, the startup uh, led by Sean, Chef Sean Sherman brought in $150,000 in 30 days worth of Kickstarter campaigning for his first restaurant, which is still in progress. It's not even open yet, but they've apparently gotten enough hype where they can announce their second one. Um It's all under this kind of sous chef umbrella, and his second restaurant concept looks like this. It is somewhere in the Minneapolis park system. Um, I think they've announced a park that they've decided to stay at, but I I don't know exactly where that park is. Um, They're going to open a spot with a full-service dining room as well as an outdoor counter service portion. So the dining room portion part of the article doesn't really specify whether or not the full dining room is going to be outside or not. I sure hope it is. It is a... cold in Minneapolis for a large portion of the year. I'm actually going to be heading to Minneapolis next month, so maybe I'll be able to find out that for myself through some chat. But what's interesting to me about this concept is two things. One, 
and this is kind of a humble brag, I was I distinctly remember sitting at a wine bar in Paris in 2014 with a friend of mine from culinary school. She's from India, and she asked me, what do you think is going to be the new American food going forward? And I responded with, the person who does Native American food, interestingly, is going to win. And here we go. Their mission statement is literally to free themselves from European ingredients. And so what that means is, quote, not using any dairy, wheat, flour, processed sugar, beef, pork, or chicken, and really just being creative with proteins and plants and agriculture that was here before. And of course, there's goals that kind of span far beyond uh, that, that mission statement. They want to, quote, be able to satellite out to the tribal regions around us and to help them open up their own indigenous food businesses and create this food network and then eventually move those indigenous food hubs to other big cities, end quote. And to me, this is interesting in two capacities. One, that there's something that there's someone breathing new life into these old traditions. And two, there's kind of someone who's putting themselves in that kind of creative box. I can all I can't I can already think of some really, really cool menu ideas with those kind of constraints, right? I get a ton of fun out of working with cool proteins and unique plants anyways. So it's essentially very similar to what a lot of these Nordic chefs ended up doing when that was on the rise, just with an entirely different culture and trying to go back to the roots of a certain tradition. I mean, I definitely joke that I called it three years ago, but I think it's important to kind of look at what trends really are, like not just putting sorrel and carrots like roasted carrots on a plate, looking at what they really truly are at their core and how they translate because that allows you to kind of forecast and be ahead of the curve with whatever you're doing. So this is your kind of friendly reminder to keep your ear to the ground with everything. I mean, just the fact that you're listening to this show says something about how you kind of like to get your news. So keep that up. Last up and our non-industry story of the day, I have to give a shout out to a movie that I saw this past weekend that I thoroughly enjoyed on multiple levels, and that is the new Kingsman movie. It's called The Golden Circle, and seriously, everything about it was good, at least in my opinion. They catered to the fans, the acting was on point, the story was great, there was a little couple Scandinavian references in the movie. There's a ton of really, really great scenes. The gear was awesome. If you really like action slash secret agent movies, or if you really just enjoy unique villains in movies, I definitely recommend it. If you watch my gear videos, you already know this. I, you already know I love this movie, so I was super pumped for the sequel, and it definitely didn't disappoint. So with that, this has been episode 32 of The Emulsion. I... I want to thank you for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you head off, if you want to support this or any other content that I do for as little as $1 per month, that's like less than a shot of espresso, I'd love for you to check out my page on Patreon. We teased it last week. It's live now this week. I think as of recording this, we're just $2 away from our first goal. And after that happens, I'm going to drop a brand new series exclusive to Patreon where I read through all the cookbooks on my shelf back here. And I cover them. I or I will, uh, yeah, I'll cover them. I'll read them cover to cover, and then I'll take my notes on them. And then one by one, I'll kind of release a video all about what I learned from them. So that means all the like, I mean, all the decent recipes that I enjoyed, all the stories, dish inspiration, all for you. And you know, it's still just a dollar a month 
qualifies you for access to those videos. So there's a ton of other awesome stuff that comes along with giving me more of your money. I'm doing exclusive live streams and behind the scenes videos, giving away some gear. So definitely check out all those rewards. And I do sincerely appreciate your support. I can't thank you guys enough. Specifically, Joshua and Yaler, my besties patrons, they're on the highest tier and they get random shout outs. So this is that shout out props, guys, you make it possible. So also another quick shout out, we're doing this book as our first book in the book club. This is the uh, Momofuku Milk Bar book. I got a ton of really, really great pastry inspiration from this. I am not a dessert guy. I love eating desserts, but I'm not the biggest uh, maker of desserts. So I really, really enjoyed that book. The video is shot. It's edited. I'm waiting for those last $2 donations to come in. And then I'll edit that video together and release it. Uh, I'm super, super pumped to show you guys and share a little bit more about these cookbooks with you folks. Uh, if you have other stories that you want covered on next week's show, I will be here again next week, just like we do every week. Go ahead and shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Uh, Subscribe if you aren't already on YouTube here and definitely leave a thumbs up on this video. Consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears, so thank you. Actually, go ahead and find a way to let me know if there's a platform that you guys would like to have the Emulsion podcast on in addition to how I'm already publishing it, whether it's on Spotify or Libsyn. There's a ton of different ways for me to get to your ears, but I just want to make sure that I'm doing it in the most convenient way possible for you. So if there's a way I can do better, don't hesitate to let me know. And if enough of you want a certain platform, I'll definitely make that happen. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.